Welcome back, dreamers, to the Cave of Wonders. I mean, the Dollop in Dreams podcast. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick, and join me this week is guest Matt Storm, a.k.a. Stormageddon, and I find a diamond in the rough and take a deep dive into the 1992 masterpiece, Aladdin. Even before the release of The Little Mermaid in 1989, lyricist Howard Ashman first pitched a 40-page treatment about a street rap based on the Thousand and One Arabian Nights that remained mostly true to the original story, but was envisioned as a campy 1930s-style musical with a Cab's Calloway Fats Waller-like genie. And along with Helen Mankin, Ashman conceived several songs, and they even added in Aladdin's Friends by Call Omar and Kasim to the story. However, of course, Jeffrey Katzenberg, deep enemy of the pod, and the studio were dismissive of Ashman's initial treatment and removed the project completely from development. Beauty and the Beast writer Linda Wolverton would use their treatment and develop a draft that was inspired by additional elements that were added from the Thief of Baghdad, like a villain named Jafar, his aged sidekick named Abu, and a human handsmaidens for the princess. Directors John Clemens and John Musker joined the production, picking Aladdin out of three projects. The other were very uh, adaptions on Swan Lake and King of the Jungle, which would eventually become The Lion King. Now, 1991 would see the death of Howard Ashman, and this event would affect the future development of this film. 1991 would see a new treatment of the script for Musker and Clements, and they delivered a story reel to the studio chief and enemy of the pod, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Can't you just kind of see him dressed like Jafar with the tiny little beard and his beady little eyes? But he ultimately felt that this version of the film didn't engage. And on a day that's become known to Disney staff as Black Friday, he demanded that the entire story be written without rescheduling the film's November 25th, 1992 release date. Yep, you heard that right. And among the requested changes, Katzenberg requested that Clements and Musker not be dependent on Howard Ashman's vision. And the removal of characters like Aladdin's mother in a song entitled Proud of Your Boy, which were inherently driven by Ashman. Songwriters Ted Elliott, our screenwriters, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossi were brought in to rework the story and strengthen the character of Princess Jasmine by having her be the only female character in the movie. That's right. Apparently, the only way we can care about a female character in 1992 is to have her be the only principal female character. Yep. Yep. In order to make the lead character more interesting, he was rewritten as a rough, young Harrison Ford. And Iago, the parrot psychic of Jafar, became less stuffy and British, and they camped up the voice to be like gruff comedian Gilbert Gottfried, because he then became voiced by comedian Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> but by 1991, Katzenberg was happy with the changes, and he was set forward to the release of the film. The design for the characters was based on the work of caricaturist Al Hirschfeld, which production designer Richard Vendy also considered appropriate for the theme to do with the similarities between Hirschfeld's style and the flowing, swooping lines of Arabic calligraphy. Though Jafar is said to be the only character not based in the Hirschfeld style, in my opinion, he's the only one that actually looks like he was born or drawn by Hirschfeld himself. If you aren't familiar with Hirschfeld, I recommend pausing the podcast right now and going and just looking at a few of his drawings. They're really quite interesting. Now, welcome back. Glenn Keane and team would be working in California to animate Aladdin, and Mark Henn would helm a team in Florida to animate Jasmine, which would lead to the two teams being separated by time differences and connected through phone, fax, and messaging of designs back and forth. This is a mess, 
And it actually wouldn't end with this movie. And we'd see it go all the way through into production of films like Tarzan almost 10 years later. Aladdin's design team originally had him more as a quirky Michael J. Fox type, somewhere between 13 and 15, but during production, the character's design shifted continually, and Katzenberg felt that the boyish look just wouldn't appeal to a broad audience, so they forced to move to, like, a Tom Cruise-style look in inspiration from Calvin Klein underwear models. I know. This is so bonkers. He even looked at them and said, no guy like this would get a girl like that, referring to a picture of Jasmine. And I was, I'm just so flummoxed to figure out who this man was in his like 10 year reign of terror at this company. I just don't, I just don't have words. The film is arguably most well-known for the portrayal of The Genie by Robin Williams. And while The Genie was written for him in mind, Katzenberg suggested pursuing John Candy, Steve Martin, or even Eddie Murphy. But in thanks for his success with Good Morning Vietnam, Robin Williams agreed to the role and only requested that he be paid the current SAG scale pay, which was about $75,000, versus his usual $8 million fee to appear in a film. He would record lines in between production for the films Toys and Hook, in which most of his work was ad-libbed. And for many scenes, he was simply just given a topic and he would riff, creating some of the most well-loved moments in the film and some insanely funny moments that were never seen. But Williams' appearance came with some very specific parameters. Disney was not to use Williams' name in commercials, but they did end up using his voice as the genie to sell toys with their fast food tie-in without a pay of additional fees to Williams. Williams quipped that the only reason Mickey Mouse had three fingers is because he can't pick up a check. The image, that's theirs, but the voice, that's me. I gave them myself. This would lead to Robin Williams refusing to return for the return of Jafar. And finally, after Katzenberg's departure, his replacement Joe Roth formally and publicly apologized to Williams, trying to repair the fallout and leading him to return for the third installment of Aladdin in The King of Thieves, as well as other future Disney properties. Out of the 14 songs originally written for the film, it features seven. Three are by Howard Ashman. Four were by Tim Rice, who was brought in to complete the score with Adam Mankin after Ashman's death. This was the third and final Disney film with songs from Ashman and Mankin, and the last musical to be touched by this charming and insanely talented Howard Ashman. And even though his song, Proud of Your Boy, was cut from the film, I like to think that ultimately everyone was proud of their boy, because a lot of performers and artists like myself are here and working because of his legacy. And if it wasn't for him pushing so hard, this film would have never been made. I'm sorry. Aladdin was released in November 25th of 1992. To critical and commercial success, becoming the highest grossing film of 1992, earning over $504 million in box office worldwide. This would be the second highest grossing film of the Disney Renaissance. Like any film, it can't be open without some controversy, and this movie is no different. The American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee felt that the lyrics in Arabian Nights led to an anti-Arab sentiment in the lyrics where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. In the original release, which was It's Flat and Immense and the Heat is Intense, with the change first appearing in the 1993 video release. The Broadway version would also use this version of the score. There are also this complaint that all the Arabic characters are Anglicized and feature Anglo-American accents from being portrayed by white actors. 
in contrast with the characters in the film who are evil and devious, who have more foreign accents and are grotesque facial features and appear evil and greedy. The conversation about the use of casting in uh, white actors in roles of characters of color in animation is still being had today, and hopefully something that we can still continue to see and change and improve upon. There was also a call to the attention that this movie was painfully similar to the unfinished and at the at the time, unfinished, Richard Williams' animated film The Thief and the Cobbler, also known as The Princess and the Cobbler, that was released by Allied Filmmakers and Miramar Films. While this release began production in 1960, well before Aladdin, the similarities in design and content could not go unnoticed by the film's hand and cr- fans and critics alike. Aladdin sauntered onto Broadway in 2014, and in this version, they kept the grand design of the film, but put back in those story elements, characters, and songs that were originally cut and changed from the Ashman treatment and script. So in many ways, Ashman was given his day for his version of Aladdin, even 13 years after he passed. It's currently playing across the world, see it in touring houses, or in a major city near you. I couldn't fit all the amazing tidbits I found about the creation of this film into the intro. So check out our show notes over at dolpindreamspod.com. Here you can find links to hours and hours of creative interview and really fun behind-the-scenes video from the bright, creative minds at Disney. Now, I just want to thank you all for bearing with me during this one. There's some people like Howard Ashman who just changed the world before and after they left this planet. And I knew this would be a difficult one to get to through. So thanks for bearing with me through that. Now don't close your eyes because we'll be right back after this message. Welcome back dreamers. Today I have a fabulous guest. No, it's not Prince Ali. It is Matt Storm, AKA Stormageddon. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Matt. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and kind of what role Disney has played in your life up to this point? Sure. So uh, I am kind of a multi-hyphenate as anyone is these days if they want to survive doing anything in any field. Uh, So I'm a DJ. I'm a podcaster. I'm a burlesque host. um, I am a Twitch streamer. Pretty much anything that has to do with anything nerdy. I have latched on to somewhere. Um, and uh, I started just DJing, I think it's over a decade ago now, uh, within the burlesque scene, and it's grown beyond that. And every other nerdy pursuit I went after after that is as a result of that and meeting people. Um, I do a variety of nerdy podcasts, gaming, TV and movies, um, more gaming, all sorts of stuff. And Disney's played an important role to me because I grew up watching a lot of the movies. Uh, my mom used to tell stories of how when I was young, I don't know how young, I have to assume younger than four or three, um, she would come home to the babysitter having left little uh, um, Lady and the Tramp on repeat in the living room. Oh. And my mom used to go to work oh. at night singing We Are Siamese, if you please, because she just, <gasps> that's all she ever heard. All the time, oh. which oh. has problems in it of itself. But, you know, it was it was just I, for whatever reason, loved that song and that movie. Um, and I grew up being a Disney fan. Um, the first movie I remember going out of my way to want to see was Oliver and Company, which will be relevant today. Um, because I love Billy Joel. I have an unhealthy obsession with Billy Joel since I was a kid because of my dad. Uh, and all of his music. And so when I heard that Billy Joel was going to be the voice of a Disney character, I was like, oh, well, I have to I have to see that movie. 
Um, and then, of course, Aladdin, uh, which we're going to talk about today, is one of my favorite Disney movies. Problems and all, there's still a lot I love about it. And I actually watched it very recently, and I think a lot of it does hold up. But we'll get more into that in a bit. We will. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I oh, you bring up Oliver and Company, which is one of my favorites. And I'm happy that it's like lived on in the way like in the Disney store this past year, they had an Oliver and Dodger plush set. And so, you know, if Disney's selling plush or something, it's still relevant. So I, I was just I was so excited to see that. And I just that score is such a bop. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll need to do an episode on it soon. Um, but yeah, like when I was in second grade, you could not tell me that I was not the coolest kid in, in school after I saw Aladdin in theaters and had like Velcro light up Aladdin sneakers, like the coolest kid in school. (laughs) So I think this is, again, I think it's one of the first besides like Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast that I remember physically sitting in the theater. And I was a ADHD kid. So like you couldn't get me to sit still except during Disney movies. I did not move. I did not budge. I didn't look away from the screen. So like it. I love this movie, and I was so excited when you uh, when you threw it out there as one of those for that that first <laughs> option when I uh, approached you about the show. Um, so, Beating the Beast and Little Mermaid kind of launched the Disney Renaissance. There was Rescuers Down Under in there, which was a little bit of a snafu for them. Um, but like Beating the Beast and Little Mermaid more moved toward that like cash cow idea of Disney. Um, but Aladdin would become the second highest grossing film of the Disney Renaissance. What do you think was so appealing about this movie when it came out? Um, I mean, I think there are a lot of different things. I think for like G- gender specific related stuff is stupid. And I'm saying up front it's stupid, but to marketers and to less knowledgeable parents, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast seem like movies for girls. They're not. I'm not condoning that kind of mentality, but to an experienced parents, it may seem that way. Whereas Aladdin from the beginning was marketed with lots of flashy numbers and a cool hero, and Robin Williams was at the forefront of it, who was kind of known across the board for a lot of different things at that point in his career, um, having done Morgan mm-hmm. Mindy, having, having done other, you know, well-known movies and TV shows. And so I think it just had a broader appeal also to parents, whereas, like, parents themselves going to those other Disney movies, they're like, oh, I'll take my kids. I don't know that there's anything here I want to see. But Robin Williams being attached and being a name, it's like, oh, well, I love his comedy. I've loved his stand-up. I'll take my kid to see that. It must be great. Um, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think it was also heavily marketed with action. It had video games mm-hmm. to come out with it. And I, and I believe I believe there was a Little Mermaid game as well, but it definitely wasn't as popular as the Aladdin video games on both Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, which yes. are currently in the process of being re-released with the Lion King games uh, on any platform you can think of, um, except for, I believe, the Super Nintendo Aladdin is the only one being left out, which I'm like, Why? But anyway, but uh, I digress. But I think that kind (laughs) of like symmetry in the marketing really uh, pushed it forward. Also, the genie is just one of those kind of classic Disney characters that are uh, seemingly genderless in the sense in the way that like it doesn't matter who you are growing up. You would have loved that character. You know, it's not a prince or a princess. It's not a king or a queen. It's a genie. You know, like an animal, the Animal Companions and other movies too, kind of just like a neutral mascot that anyone could fall for. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I, th- I mean, you put it best. It's There was this constant battle through the Disney Renaissance, mostly coming from Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is a deep enemy of the pod. Um, <laughs> but um, it's, it's this idea that we needed to gender movies. And again, it's as you said, gender is stupid, but we can't look at this time without acknowledging how important the gender binary was to marketing and product development. And so... While this movie had Jasmine, which appealed to both genders, and then you also had a cute monkey and you had a cute tiger, which they were like, ooh, that's for the girls. We had Aladdin, who was this big action star, and the genie. And this is one of the first animated films as I was going through my research where – the grown-ups were thought about. So it was one of those that, like, they were, Disney at this point was going, oh, the adults have to take kids to see these movies, so why don't we put some things in for the adults as well? And so the genie is one of those placeholders and one of the first ones where you go, oh, this is really funny for the adults because some of the, like, Robin Williams humor is totally going over the kids' heads. And we would see this continue through, like, Shrek and things. They would kind of continue this like bodiness and almost British style of humor to children's programming. And so I think all of those things together made it kind of this blockbuster phenomena uh, that really just kind of worked in a way that everyone could go see it and pull something away from it. And also I, uh, there were tons of products for Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid, but I remember Aladdin having way more products than I'd ever seen for a Disney movie before. Like you had the full dolls, but then you also had action figures of everybody plus plush and board games and video games and clothing. I think this was really when Disney was kind of figuring out their market um, that they actually could make billions of dollars off these movies. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, for sure. I remember just as a kid being a fan of the movie, I had a genie plushie. I had action figures of all the characters. Mm -hmm. I had the video game on whatever console I had at the time, probably Genesis, if I have to remember. Uh, And like, I remember just loving it so much because of that. I mean, also remember this is at at this time during the Disney Renaissance, like it's the first time Disney started developing games in house. They had, you know, they worked and from here they begin to work with Capcom and release stuff for the Disney afternoon cartoons. But it started with acquiring a developer, putting them in house and having them work on these games. And um, a lot of the games were designed to be more difficult at the time, just so people would play them more. You know, the the Lion King game is infamously difficult because at the time the playtime was considered well. If they can't beat it, they'll keep playing it, which is a flawed right. logic in gaming. But but was the logic at the time because they weren't sure what sold video games at the time. They just knew if they saw this character that they're familiar with, they would probably buy the game. It's also why they did different games for different consoles as well, because not just the limitations of the hardware, but like for those few kids who maybe had both, they were hoping they'd buy both games because they were different games, even though it was the same character. Right. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but this was at a point where you really could not say the save option was not existing yet on video game consoles. So when you started playing, you had to, play again yeah so um for some games it was the super nintendo era there were particular games that you could save your game on games like zelda and metroid had built-in batteries that would help save your games but uh, if you wanted to make a game on the cheaper side yes you would have like a password system so you could write down the password and start at the level you left off at but for the most part these games had limited lives limited continues and then you had to start over 
Um, for right. sure, the Disney games were designed that way um, and did not oh, have yeah. a safe f- feature. Cool. Yeah, I, I was so excited to see that those games were getting a re-release because I, uh, you know, it's one of those things when you're a kid, you don't really have an economic grasp of where your family is. And so, like, we were fine, but, like, I never had the video game systems till they were, like, well obsolete. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember getting a Sega Genesis and finally getting that Lion King game and just never being able to beat it. And yeah. then my dad couldn't beat it. Um, so... Uh, as adults, we kind of rewatch things and, and there's this kind of discourse constantly about nostalgia goggles and do we not see, you know, problem with things. But like you said, I really think this movie holds up. I rewatched it a couple nights ago. Um, and cause this is one while I occasionally get the, the wild hair and go, I really want to watch Aladdin. Um, but I think overall this really, really does hold up. What are, what are some things for you that just kind of stick out as like, really still holding up during your rewatch. Sure. So the fun part for me is I think it was sometime earlier this year. I got to rewatch it with um, my, uh, my two nieces and my nephew, um, my brother-in-law's kids. And um, what was really lovely for me is a, I remembered a lot of the lines and had to struggle not to say them aloud as I used to watch this <laughs> on the loop. But what was really great is there were moments that I was going to laugh at, but before I started laughing, the kids started laughing jokes that they got, um, oh, cute. The, and that was, and I mean, hearing them to be hysterical was great. Um, you know, there are, I think all the physical comedy still holds up and there's a ton of physical comedy in this movie, you know, where, whether it comes mm-hmm. from like Iago getting beat up or shut up or his mouth being closed, like all that kind of stuff is universal. But what made me laugh the loudest and also kind of sad on the inside was anything Robin Williams did. Like I'm a diehard Robin Williams fan. I've cried over some celebrity deaths as we want to do just because we feel connected to them. But he was one that like I was a wreck because I grew up watching all of his stuff from his stand up to his TV mm-hmm. shows to his movies and but to see him again in this light like it's easily one of my favorite roles because and if you watch the documentaries this role was designed for him like they yeah, he absolutely. he was the one they wanted and even though there was difficulty afterwards and they him and Disney had had a falling out over you know the agreements that they had put in place the reality was this character was written and designed for him all the impressions with the transformations of the genie and like all of that stuff all holds up, especially for someone around our age who are just young enough to remember those older comedians that he's impersonating and just old enough to remember all of the more current stuff. Um, you know, like when he mm-hmm. transforms into Jack Nicholson, when he transforms into Groucho Marx, like all of these things are super universal if you're a fan of comedy. But for kids, he's also just saying something silly and looks silly because of all of those yeah. transformations being exaggerated. Um, and so I think the genie is the thing that holds up the most. You know, I, I as an adult, and I'm sure we'll get into this a bit, like the fact that it's an entire white cast makes me uncomfortable now as an adult. And yeah. uh, I have a friend that uh, I won't mention by name just in case she doesn't want to be because um, she's not a public performer of any kind. But someone that I used to work with and hang out with a lot, she hated this movie. And it's because she's of a nationality that like felt insulted the fact that that they weren't represented in the movie at all. Um, and so, and I, and I never understood until I got older why she couldn't like it. I'm like, but it's a cartoon. Who cares? You know, Mm -hmm, I was, I was a kid. mm -hmm. What the hell did I know? I was an idiot. Some might argue I still am, but that's besides the point. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah. And, and so I think that's the thing I struggle with the most, but watching it with kids, 
for sure gives it on a, definitely a new life because it's still relatable. It's still fun. The music is still incredible. Um, you know, I think that maybe my only major issue or the, the, the things that are obvious issues, the obviously white cast, the damsel in distress stuff, although Jasmine is one of the more progressive uh, characters in the early Disney lore because she oh, does yes. devise the plan to stop Jafar and all that stuff. But there's still like the and and she's very obstinate and very much against the 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 way the hierarchy is. So you know it is I think still progressive for the time. But there are definitely still moments where I'm just like mm, I don't know this is not great. You know those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll agree with you uh, with a hundred percent there. Of like, I think we can watch it and still appreciate it, but um, because we have that nostalgia too. But I think we can go. Why didn't we do better? This was the nineties. Granted, it still wasn't progressive, but like, why didn't we do better? Just because we couldn't? Because like this came up when we were talking about Rescuers Down Under. Um, Cody, the, the little boy was originally supposed to be of Maori descent and, uh, voiced by an Aboriginal, um, actor and the company and specifically Katzenberg said, no, he's got to be white and blonde and sound American. And so it's one of those things of, they knew the market they were trying to appeal to. And then any other kid that got caught in that net was fine. Um, but yeah, it's so, uh, the genie is arguably the best part. And I think because we now have a couple other versions of Aladdin that exists from Disney, mm-hmm. we still have to go, you know, that to me is the biggest hurdle you have to overcome is what do you do with the genie? Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I think this is a good place to kind of talk about that, especially when, Disney is known for Disneyfying any sort of story, and so the this comes from the Thousand One Arabian Nights tales, um, which came from multiple countries in what we now know as South Asia, the Middle East, Asian countries that were compiled and then translated by a French nobleman, mm-hmm. um, and that's the version of the stories we have. And so then Disney Disneyfied an already kind of white western version of the story and so what's interesting to me is that disney chose this very specific time when actually i didn't realize that aladdin himself and um the city that this is supposed to take place in actually is on the border of china i believe a and in the you know at that point an indiscriminate asian country um and so disney then flipped that script so then to go, you know what, we have all these well-known white actors, let's just let's just use them. And that's where they went with casting. Because um, even then, when they did Broadway, they really tried to rectify that. And mm-hmm. then in the film, this live-action film, they've tried to rectify it more. But it's still that one, th- that thing of like, okay, well, then we then had, uh, you know, Jonathan uh, Freeman, who's an amazing voice of Jafar. Yeah. I love... Jafar is actually another part of why I really love this movie, but I'll, I'll get into that next. <laughs> um, but it's, it's that idea of you've got these kids who for the first time, Jasmine's the first Disney princess of color. Aladdin is the first Disney hero of color in like a mainstream film. Yeah. And so the kids for the first time are seeing these 
images of themselves, but to know that they were like, okay, cool. So Aladdin's going to take place in Agrabah, which is supposed to be um, uh, Baghdad, essentially, as uh, the, the city they went to for the, the idea of, of finding the architecture and everything. But they were originally, he was supposed to look like Marty McFly and like, um, and just be kind of young and unassuming and like a scrappy teenager. And then this weird thing happened where they were like, well, she's gorgeous. Like she's she's so gorgeous. Um, she would never pick a guy like him. He needs to be sexier. And they were like Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, Calvin Klein models. He needs to be attractive. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is a kid. Knowing all of that, now I go, but this is a kids movie, and they're both teenagers. So like, I'm confused. <laughs> um, and it's something that like I would have never picked up on as a kid. And honestly. As an adult, I wouldn't pick up on because, like, as a queer person, I look back and go, oh, yeah, I totally had, like, a kid's crush on Aladdin um, before I knew, like, what a crush was. Sure. Or, you know, or before you sexify, you know, before things are sexualized. Um, And, like, you just – but it's one of those, like, hero admiration things. Yeah. Um, And I don't understand why in the development of these stories that the idea of sticking to this very, like, white – version of Western beauty was what they needed to tell the story. Like to me as an adult now that totally, it it just, there's no explanation they can make that could check through for me. Like, I just don't understand. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of it comes from white man ignorance and uh, don't at me because it's true. Uh, Especially looking at who's running these companies at the time. Absolutely. And, and like, I mean, there's a lot of things, right? So for example, there was a lot of people complaining that, um, uh, Jasmine's outfits were more conservative in the new movie and the remake. And it's like, but, but because they're supposed to look more of the time and the place, right. what she's wearing in the cartoon is not accurate. It's male fantasy harem dress. It's not mm-hmm. royalty dress mm-hmm. of that time. Um, you know, and yeah, and going back to you talking about like, um, uh, the actor who's playing, who played the voice of Jafar in the movie is actually doing a run on the Broadway show, which I think is really cool for people who grew up and watched the movie, but I'm still hesitant as someone who's like, yeah, but he's a white guy playing a non-white character. Like I, I, well, and like, I get the legacy brought, of it, but yeah. I'm conflicted about the doing of it. Well, and they bronze him up too. That's the thing is he is bronzed to hell yep. in that show. They want, Like that's the thing is – he want they want him to look like the cartoon and they did such a really good job of diversifying the cast. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's that idea of people go, well, are they, you know, but it's, it's that idea. It's not a stage full of white people, which for Disney, you know, it's still a conversation that we have to have of like why that's, you know, a good choice to not cast a stage full of white people. Right. You know, that's what, that's what frozen is for. (laughs) That's not what, you know, but even then with like frozen, they flip the script and they're, they're starting to go with this idea of whoever's best for the role gets the role when it doesn't need to have specific um, modifiers for who the people are. But like when, when you do these live action films, I like as a costume designer, I loved Jasmine costumes, Jasmine's costumes in the new movie, because that's the thing is like the animated film. It's like, cool. It's set whenever it looks like whatever it's fine. Cause it's a cartoon, but they had to do the same thing with beauty and the beast where they went, Oh, we have to find a moment in time where this, this story takes place, where this story makes sense. 
Um, and they did that. And you could tell they did a lot of research. And now while a lot of the fabrics they used are not traditional fabrics to that area, they look correct and they, they're interesting for the film. And now like Aladdin's wearing a hoodie and a vest with like utility boots with a pointed toe. That's a style choice. That, that was a specific design choice that they made. But I think there's something still so startling about Naomi Scott as Jasmine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, performance aside, because I, I have not seen the live action film yet. Me I'm waiting either. for Disney+. Plus. Um, <laughs> it, it just was, you know, it was one of those things when movies are expensive and you have to pick your, your right ones. I was like, you know what? Lion King and Aladdin just didn't make the cut this summer. Nope. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's also people are getting angry about weird things, one, for nostalgia, but two, they're generally uninformed about what they're getting angry about. And so, yeah, it's so it's so weird to see what people actually are getting upset about. But, like, we had um, uh, a graduate student that just graduated uh, that I'm going to have on the podcast in a couple weeks. His name's Afshin Mashagi, and he was like, dude, for me, Aladdin is like – um, are crazy rich Asians for, you know, South, uh, South Asian people, Middle Eastern people. He was like, it was so cool to see a movie of all of these faces that look like mine. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of these like white male straight executives feel um, that they just don't realize that like you get to see yourself in the mirror and in media and across everything every day. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't, but they still consume your media anyway. So why not do this for them considering then they'll want to consume more of your media? Because when we have to look at this as like a capitalist consumerism, and that's really what taking in Disney is, um, that, you you know, you have to – why wouldn't you from pure money standpoint want to put faces that look like the people who are coming to your parks and are coming to your movie? Like I guess guess I'm a little too woke in in so many ways of that I'm always thinking about these things that like – I think I said in another episode, I was like, honestly, if I have to see about 10 years worth of movies with no white people in them, I'm okay. I've seen myself for a while. <laughs> yeah. I'm not worried um, about my representation at this point. Not by no, a long and, shot. And honestly, most of the time white representation is heavily flawed and the way that they're presented is too nice anyway. So, That's also true. Um, but, you know, it's also the thing from, like, for queer people, like, there even needed to be a conversation about, they were like, well, why would Elsa need a girlfriend? And it's like, well, Elsa doesn't need a girlfriend, but, like, why not? Like, why why not give Elsa a girlfriend? Yeah. I mean, or why not create original queer stories? Like, they are, it's where we're not at the point where you can be worried about what kids will think because kids don't think about that kind of thing because... I mean, at the end of the day, they don't even really think about Ariel leaving everything for a boy. They go, she's a mermaid, and I like mermaids. So, right. you know, I, th- I think we still have to, um, to look at it that way. But it's 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 so hard to look at because there are certain – also because, like, talking about Jafar, he's such a cool villain. He's a fun villain. I won't right. say cool villain. He's a fun villain. He gets all this foppishness, and his, his, so- his one song is – my favorite in the show, the Prince Ali um, uh, refrain is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because he's such an amazing actor, but I think we have to talk about like, you know, this came right after like animated LeFou and Ursula, who were bo- both heavily queer coded. I think even Gaston has a little queer coding. Yep. Um, but like Jafar is heavily queer coded. And like in the live action, they had a beautiful man, a beautiful man played Jafar. Yeah. I saw him and it was like, Oh, okay. I'm interested in Aladdin suddenly. Um, but like they, they tried to pull all of those Jafar things away because they went, Oh, this, 
you know, this might have been a problem to begin with. And it actually, from what I understand and what I've actually seen of the the clips and the performance and whatnot, it kind of made him a less interesting character. But it's one of those things. It's like, do we need to keep going with those idea of like this queer coding to Disney villains from the Renaissance? Or can we pull that away, but then still make them really fun and dynamic without making them like overtly evil and unnecessarily, you know, evil in those kinds of ways so that they're not too scary for kids. Um, But it's one of those things. It's like, I don't know if you start pulling these individual strings, if you've got a full movie left when you start pulling them and then you have to put things back together if it still works. Well, sure. But I think part of it also is like the uh, queer people being the villains, queer people being the ones who die. Like these are tropes that I think we're trying to pull away from. But, but that said also, I mean, I have to respect the live action again. I haven't seen it either though. I do plan to Um, like, you're going to want to do your own thing. Like I, I did watch an interview with Will Smith who I am. I'm genuinely a Will Smith fan and uh, I have always been. And so when he was taking over for the genie, you know, I was hesitant as anyone who's a diehard Robin Williams fan would be, but I also thought, okay, he's also a human cartoon character. I can see that. And like, at the end of the day, he says like, he had a strong urge to want to do what Robin Williams did because he too grew up on Robin Williams, loved that mm-hmm. movie. But at the end of the day, they were like, let's make, let's, let's, uh, let's, tri- let's pay tribute to him. Let's do our own thing, yeah. but let's acknowledge the man who made this real. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the clips I've seen of the performances are, are good. I think my hesitation with wanting to see the movie in the theaters was, when you have a cartoon, a cartoon can be so much more expressive than any live action anything. Yes. And yes, so yes, yes. everything like the the I think they released Prince Ali almost in its entirety online just just mm-hmm. as like a clip. Mm-hmm. And I watched it and it was pretty and it like the choreography was amazing, but mm-hmm. compared to the one from the animated movie, it just felt kind of boring. And I don't think that's the fault of the new movie. I think that's the fault of trying to make the same thing. It was my big hesitance with Lion King, even though I know that's not what this episode's about. Like, those characters in the movie are so expressive. And then we want to be realistic, so we make them look like real animals, so they're not expressive at all. Mm Because while animals can be expressive, not to the same degree a cartoon can. And, like, that was my biggest hesitant about seeing it. But that said, I do still want to give it a fair shake as as much as I love the animated movie. Mm -hmm. And as far as talking about Jafar... And and his role as a villain, like uh, his he has some of the best jokes in the whole movie, and like you know his reaction at the thought of marrying Jasmine, like being completely disgusted, and like wait a minute, like I just I love yeah. I love those moments. I love I know he's problematic in some places, but I like Gilbert Gottfried, especially in this role as Iago. Like oh, so good, he's so memorable and so wonderful. And, and like and I'm sure Alan Tudyk did a great job as Iago in the live action. I love Alan Tudyk, but like there's something about. Gilbert Gottfried as a complainy comedian playing a complainy character like mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. and, and the fact that he's the idea man also and that Jafar does sort of consider him an equal to an extent except when he gets pissed off is also a really interesting yeah. dynamic that he's his henchbird but there is a mutual respect between the two of them whereas henchmen in other movies before that had kind of just been lumbering dolts who 
didn't really have much of their own intelligence. But it's clear Iago is not just some idiot bird. He's a character with some development and some uses. He can do impressions. He's stealthy. Right. He's smart. That that kind of thing, which I which they never explain. He just can, and I kind of love right. that as well. Well, and it's interesting to know that originally Iago was supposed to be like Zazu, so he's supposed to be this very stuffy British bird, which. Jafar is also Jafar out of the two of them is the straight man. Like Jafar is pretty much the straight man of the film, uh, which is funny considering. Um, But yeah, no, Jonathan Freeman's dry delivery of some of these really wonderful, very catty, they're very shady moments. Like it's one of those, it's like, okay, queen come through. You know, it, it is one of those that, uh, I, I would be lying if my particular brand of queer was not completely, flavored by Disney. I mean, I literally do (laughs) Ursula in drag. Like this is just something I do. So it's one of those things that it's, I'm very clearly coded by Disney villains myself in my queerness before I even had a dialogue for that. But it it would have just been interesting to think that like, uh, you know, it's, uh, Iago was also supposed to be kind of British and stuffy and weird. And I was like, that wouldn't have worked at all. Like, I feel like it would have just fallen flat. Um, and, you know, I know it was to probably represent that idea of, like, future colonialism and things, but um, uh, something I did find in my research, which I thought was interesting about Jafar, that they talk about is when they were designing the actual characters, they were all all inspired by shapes and then Hirschfeld paintings, like Hirschfeld drawings, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, if anybody doesn't know, Hirschfeld will have some references up on our Instagram and on our blog on our website, doughupanddreamspod.com. Um, but to me, and then they said that Jafar is the only one who is not inspired by a Hirschfeld drawing. But to me, he's the only one that actually looks like a Hirschfeld drawing. Right. Because his face, he looks the most not human, which makes sense that I go, oh, he looks way better as a genie than he, you know, makes way more sense than as a, um, you know, as as kind of a human in the way that he looks as a, a human. Now, what I do think is interesting is that this movie spawned two direct-to-DVD or direct, well, it's not DVDs, direct-to-home video sequels. Yeah. Um, and this was arguably like Disney's first franchise, if you will. For sure. Just because like Rescuers, we did have a sequel first. And all, you know what's funny? Go back to Oliver and Company. Oliver and Company was also supposed to be a Rescuer sequel. Mm-hmm. Um and then they completely flipped that. Um, but uh, which you all can hear about in our Rescue Us Down Under episode coming out soon. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, it's one of those things that like they and I believe Aladdin was a TV show as well. It was. They hadn't. Uh, yeah. So like they really and all the a Little Mermaid was a TV show as well. But I mean, they really kind of it's. Oh, a lot of thoughts at once. Um, see, it's it's weird because they were really kind of capturing these characters for all they were worth at this point. But then also looking at the live action versions as well, I think it's hard to not talk about all of the live action remakes because within a couple years, almost every Disney Renaissance film will have a live action counterpart. Yep. Um, now that Tarzan and Hercules are both in the mix as well. Um but and Mulan and yeah, oh god everything uh, you know it's one of those things it's just there are all these pieces that come together in the right way in a way that they almost shouldn't to make this film work and still be really engaging and beautiful um, and like 
for me, going back to the, the production design of this sticks out with me more than almost anything else as well. Um, just those kind of giant landscapes, just the giant backdrops mm-hmm. that were all digital. Um, and as much as I loved the original cell painting and how beautiful that could have looked, um, there's just something so magical about the sheer scope of this film that I just... I love and it just is right. Like it just feels right to me. Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, remember, like this is early days of CG and the Cave of Wonders, for the most part, is digital. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And and still watching it recently, like still impressive to look at, still looks amazing. Um, Yeah. And uh, talking about the franchise, like. I grew up with this movie. I grew up watching the TV show, um, Dan Castellaneta being voiced, the voice of uh, Mm -hmm, the genie mm -hmm. in the first sequel and the TV show. It wasn't until after that that Robin Williams actually came back for the third sequel for King of Thieves, which, like, for me was, like, Christmas. Although, I will say, like, I thought Dan Dan Castellaneta did a great job trying to fill in that role like the the spirit was definitely there he's definitely of course a guy who can be as goofy but i do remember his kid going huh he sounds different but not really knowing a lot about voice actors at the time to really pull it together but i loved the cartoon i i liked the 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 sequels i don't know if i watched them now if they would hold up but i was just such a diehard fan of of aladdin that i i really liked Mm -hmm. them um but they've always looked really beautiful. The colors were always vibrant. The The landscapes are incredible. Also, being a white Jew from New York, like, I've never seen those kinds of landscapes. I've never been right. to a desert, really. I, I visited Arizona. That's about as close as I've gotten. <laughs> like, that's a desert. Um, but not quite the same. Oh, my God. Uh, it's true. It's true. And so, like, I mean, seeing those things on on in in animation were gorgeous but like one Mm -hmm. thing that i am excited about finally seeing the live action movie is like that it's going to be real landscapes and real locations Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. also something i'm reading in the notes for aladdin i didn't realize that that movie was directed by guy ritchie uh yeah which like for me i love guy ritchie for uh like boondock saints oh not boondock saints mm-hmm. uh lock stock two smoking barrels um mm-hmm. snatch mm-hmm. snatch is one of my all-time favorites and so like the sherlock holmes movies i enjoyed not my first choice for an aladdin film and so no. and so i'm curious how the fight scenes stack up because of course that's the kind of stuff he's yeah. known for um but that said yeah i think that what will always make Aladdin stand out among all of the other Disney animated movies, especially of this time, is the landscapes. And it, it's definitely an inspiration for future films because think about The Lion King, which came after, like how mm-hmm. incredibly colorful the savannas were, especially during like mm-hmm. I Can't Wait to Be King where everything's oh, an unrealistic yeah. color and like just super mm-hmm. bright and vibrant. Like this was Disney's lead into like, oh, things don't have to look as much like real life, it's a cartoon. Mm-hmm. We can play with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the thing about that is I love, they did it in Aladdin and they do it in Lion King as well, where they look at textiles and they look at tapestry from the region that they're telling the story in. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of make a lot of the movie look like that. Like, I just can't wait to be king. To me, looks like really beautiful traditional kentai cloth, like a lot of really cool waxed cottons yep. that you see and get from Africa. Um, and which I think, you know, they were able to also capture on Broadway in the Lion King on Broadway, which is played 
every country and it's in 10 languages. I, you know, it's, it's, it's as big as the movie is, but it's, it's something that they do. You can tell they do their research, but it's always weird where they decide to do their research. Yeah. Um, and like how they, how they lock some things in. Um, now, is there anything looking at the script? Like if we're looking at on paper as a story, um, cause, uh, Matt, you have a, a, a movie and entertainment podcast and you and I have both been on, uh, our friend cases, uh, podcast as well, where we kind of talk about movies and we kind of deconstruct and reconstruct. Is there anything for you in the story that just like doesn't work on the base level that you would want to restructure in how the story is told? That's a good question i mean i think the I, I mean the biggest kind of elephant in the room is the removal of proud of your boy um and how having seen the demo sketches and the demo recording having heard re-recordings of it like i i just i don't understand why that was i mean i do know why it was cut like we we factually know why it was cut but like yeah it it, it's perfect for that story. And I, I'd say the only thing that's really missing from this movie is more development for Aladdin. Like, we, yeah. we get we get the backstory for Jasmine pretty quick, even for the Sultan, definitely for Jafar, um, you know, definitely for the genie. And, and we get it quick. And, like, that one song really does give you most of the things you need to know about Aladdin and the fact that it was removed. And it's such a beautiful song is... It, it kills me, you know. It. Yeah. I, I think that that's the biggest hole because if you look at Aladdin in the movie, like he's charming, he's handsome, he's you know he's quippy, you know, all of the favorite uh, white trope uh, hero kind of things. You're Han Solo, mm-hmm. like, and so I think he's 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 okay in that, but it's very one dimensional. He grows, of course, and yeah. that's part of the point. Like he's supposed to seem one dimensional because then with the Prince Ali thing, he learns to be honest. Blah blah blah, moral stuff, mm-hmm. but. I think the removal of that song and that moment really cuts a hole in his character development. Yeah, I I agree with you. So for a lot of folks out there who don't know, Aladdin's mom was in a good portion of the first first version, second version of the film. Um, and she had a lot of development. She was a great character. And then they cut her because they felt she was detracting from Jasmine. They, they wanted to make Jasmine a more interesting character and heaven forbid, we have two strong female characters in a movie together. She's the only female character. That's not the, um, swooning girls pretty much, yeah. <laughs> or you know just the background woman she's the only woman with dialogue um and i agree with you i had no idea about proud of your boy until case uh, uh clay aiken sang it for one of the disney mania uh-huh. albums and i went oh that's weird aladdin's mom was in one of these and then going through and doing research for this seeing how prevalent she was it actually to me, Disney does this thing where they go, oh, you know, he's poor, which means he's uneducated and he is immediately doing things that are less than, you know, socially acceptable because he's poor. And that's just the kind of thing that poor people do. And I feel like giving him the anchor of his mom would have really developed him in a way that wouldn't have read as poor people are awful. They do bad things and poor people need to learn to be good people. Um, cause you know, it's, uh, it's a very classist thing, but that's the whole, you know, rags to riches. He's a diamond in the rough. It's that, it's that whole idea. Um, but proud of your boy, I think grounds him and also gives him another really nice moment. Um, cause you know, otherwise Aladdin just sings 
whole new world and one step. Like, and so it's, I think proud of your boy would have given him a nice grounding moment. And I don't think it would have added too much to the length of the movie to have his mom there. And I really liked the animation style of the, the, she was a shorter, heavier set woman who looks of the region and was just very sweet and kind and I thought it would have been nice to have her. Yeah. Well, and especially there. since Aladdin is kind. Like, you know, yeah. talking about the stereotypes that we're talking about, but Aladdin is kind. Like, while he's stealing for himself, the minute he sees hungry kids, he shares with them, much to Abu's yeah. dis- disagreement. You know, like, he's always yeah. helping those around him. And, like, when Jasmine's in trouble incognito, he rushes to her rescue. Like, yeah. he is definitely a chivalrous and kind person. And, like to know why and where he got it from is important. You know, like it's clear yes. that Jasmine got her her strength from her mother, even though we never see her either. Right. Like, because it's not from her father. Her father is kind of adult, a lovely, <laughs> kind yes. adult, but adult. You know, and so it's yeah. just... It, it, the fact that they decided, well, this this movie's got to have all men except for Jasmine. No Jasmine's mom, no Aladdin's mom is like, I don't, I don't understand why. It's why I'm excited that in the new movie, Jasmine has a best friend who yes. kind of, I've heard, becomes sort of an interest for the genie, which is interesting. But like that aside, like, thank God, right? That there's not just yeah. one woman yeah. in this movie and and yeah i i think that those are the biggest holes because as far as the action and the growth of the characters you know like i think i think it's done really well like one of my favorite and still most harrowing scenes is when aladdin is thrown in the water and genie wants to rescue him but can't because he needs to be it for it to be a wish and he's dying right, and he saves right. him anyway right that's character development for the genie showing that the wishes are more about than just wishes. Like he likes Aladdin. He cares about him. There's a friendship developing, uh, you know, a lot of those moments or like when Aladdin refuses to not be himself and still wants to be Prince Ali and go up to the window and the genie's arguing with him. Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. like all of those emotional moments are designed really well. And so I think if we had those one or two other developmental moments, like maybe a flashback with Jasmine and her mom or, just a yeah. brief moment with uh, Aladdin and his mother, I think would be great moments that would round out an otherwise f- fairly well on track movie narrative wise. And if you think about it now, they would probably do that because then they could go, Oh look, we can sell a baby Jasmine doll. So here we go. We'll do a young Jasmine scene. We'll do a young Aladdin scene. Um, I think it's hard to talk about proud of your boy and not talk about Howard Ashman. Yes. Who, um, you all are you, – everybody's hopefully listened to the Little Mermaid episode. It's our second one. If not, go back, listen to it. It sets up a lot of our Disney Renaissance talk. But Howard Ashman passed away during the creation of this film. Um, but he worked with Alan Menken and created the beautiful score to Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and a, a few of the songs that made the cut of this movie. But Howard Ashman was actually the driving force behind this movie with Disney. He turned in the first um, treatment. He was pushing it. They had like 20 songs written. Like there was just so much and he pushed so hard but in true jeffrey katzenberg fashion i mean and normally with disney it takes it takes a village because they always bring in rewriters and editors and people to punch up the comedy which makes a ton of sense but knowing a lot of these things that got cut were ashman specific things and um that uh they were 
They were cut after his death. They were told not to use anything from his treatment. Um, knowing, uh, like we do of the time that he passed away from complications with AIDS. Uh, this was during the epidemic when, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan ignored what was happening. And so we lost a lot of people we didn't need to. Knowing these things and knowing like a queer person's journey, proud of your boy to me means so much more. And I could be conjecturing, I could be projecting onto to Howard's story, which for anyone out there who knew Howard or knows his story more than I do, I don't want to do that. But I think as a queer person, it is such an injustice that's proud of your boy was cut because it is this last message to everyone in your life to to your family yeah. I'm, I'm probably about uh, i uh forgive me you guys if i get a little weepy just it is uh, to me we lost so many people artists unnecessarily and i can only imagine the incredible things that howard ashman would still be doing i mean look at alan Menken's career yeah um and just knowing i mean it we then did start getting Stephen Schwartz in who would start writing for Disney and doing really beautiful and cool work. Um, but like, I, I, it is a lot of the choices to me. This is a perfect moment of, there are some things that worked out like the, um, the genie only having three wishes, I think worked out way better than having infinite wishes. Sure. Um, and there were just some things that honestly did end up working out well, I think gutting the heart of Howard Ashman's version of Aladdin ultimately says a lot of Katzenberg's character and the company's character and what they were willing to do to make money versus honor someone who was a part of their legacy. Because, like, to me, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast are almost nothing without their scores. Right. And kind of the story that was being told. And Aladdin as well. Now, um, the, the additional songs that were written were... Absolutely amazing. They are really cool. And hold on, I'm looking in the notes here. There are only a couple that actually got kept from um, from the original version of the, the script. Um, uh, Prince Ali is one of them. Oh, here it is. Only seven. Uh, there are only seven songs featured in the movie, although 14 were written. Um, seven. Uh, yeah, seven were featured. Three are by Ashman and four are with Tim Rice who came in to work with Alan Menken. Tim Rice would also be the person who would pin um, Lion King with Elton John, which is another, uh, probably arguably one of the most iconic Disney scores yeah. ever. Um, I mean, and Tim Rice also did some amazing, uh, he's a musical theater composer. Um, I mean, Jesus Christ, superstar. Let's just start there. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's all these things that, while the movie we got is really fantastic, I just... I, 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 and you know, I, this is still me being the dreamer side of Disney. I can't see sacrificing someone who literally gave everything till his last breath to the company. Like he died wearing a beauty and well, the last time people saw him, he was literally wearing a beauty and the beast sweatshirt after the premiere because he was too sick to go to the premiere. Right. He was in the hospital and this was a common story for a lot of people at the time, and it's why we have Broadway Cares and so many things, and um, his legacy has lived on. Um, but I think it, it, it's it's a careless omission. And again, looking back, I wasn't in those rooms, but like, there's a lot that we know from that time, and a lot of people that were in those rooms have talked, and it's just it's, – it's something I have a really hard time justifying. Now, granted, Jeffrey Katzenberg left the company a couple years later during um, 
during the after Hercules. So he was only with the company about 10 years. Um, and while a lot of the greatest films of Disney's history came out during that time, he didn't do a lot to help those. So I think it's one of those things that we can't talk about this time in Disney movies without talking about him. Uh, and I guess Jeffrey, if you're listening, reach out. Anybody that knows Jeffrey, reach out to us. I'd love to have a conversation about it. But this is just kind of from a researcher, a viewer's standpoint. It's it's really hard to willingly know that like a queer innovator had their lineage erased, and this happened to so many people because of the AIDS crisis. And I just I, I still have a hard time justifying it now, almost thirty years later. So I, I don't yeah. I have a lot of feelings about this. <laughs> I mean, same, uh, you know, and I think that, you know, it's easier to enjoy stuff like this when we're younger because we don't know all this information. I mean, especially now in the internet age where it's so easy to research mm-hmm. anything, whereas when Aladdin mm-hmm. came out, I didn't even know who all the voice actors were because there was no easy way to figure right. that out. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it's it's tough. Like, Disney is a complicated thing to love currently still. I mean, even recent years with their acquisitions of Star Wars and Marvel and like currently with as of when we're recording the shit going on with uh, uh, Jeremy Renner and I'm not going to get into details of it, but like, you know, and wanting him to be out for Hawkeye after the TV series. Like, it's just the kinds of things Disney does all the time. Like he's out after the Hawkeye series, not before. Yes. Like he's going to transfer the mantle to Kate Bishop, which we know is happening. And then he's out. <laughs> yes. And, and like, I'm excited for Kate Bishop. I love her as a character. I, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm bummed that I, I'm bummed as a fan of Clint Barton, that we got such a douche tool to play him do it well. But like now he's going to be gone and they're never going to recast him or bring him back. And that, that's fine. I'll live with that. Like, He's one of my favorite characters, but it's fine. But it's the Disney thing of, like, this terrible thing happens, and we either overreact and jump to conclusions, a la James Gunn, or we don't react fast enough and things still progress. And, like, back then, there was no media for, for like, average people to know. So, like, when this kind of stuff happened... There was no way to know until after the fact, and it's it's still a bummer. Right. But that said, I still would stand by Aladdin being one of the strongest Disney animated movies. It's definitely of the Renaissance era, probably my favorite. Lion King was a close second, but I've watched them. Oh, both. nice. Okay, but, but, I mean, I no, go ahead. No, no, I was I was gonna say that totally stands up to me as well. I, I. I I'm one of those, I'm a weird fan that's like, mm, I don't have a favorite. How can you possibly <laughs> ask me of that? But, you know, we all we all have a favorite that we go to. And I have a, I have a lot more adoration for Aladdin than I thought I did. Right. Um, and it's every time I rewatch it, I go, mm, this is so fun. I love this movie. And, like, I just loved watching it on Broadway. Like, it was, it was such a good time. So Yeah, I haven't seen the Broadway production yet. I do want to. Um, Man. Man, go see it. You literally live in New York. I know. Yeah. I, you live in New I mean, Broadway's expensive, though. Yes. So. But, but yeah, but, like, for me, um, I think the reason Aladdin holds up more than, than Lion King for me is mostly my love of the story and of Robin Williams. There's nothing wrong with the Lion no. King story. I've, I've truly never been a Beauty and the Beast fan, and this is not a, oh, it's for girls thing, because as a queer man, like, I can like girl stuff too. I've worn a dress or two. Like it's not, it's not about that. It's about, I just don't really love the story of beauty and the beast. And like even watching the live action remake, that's one of the ones I've seen. 
was also not great, it kind of cemented that this is just not a movie for me. It can be for other people, right. but it's not for me. And that's okay. And I apologize because I've talked about more different Disney movies. Like, having listened to what I've listened to so far, we're all over the map. But I feel like Aladdin is, like, the center point for a lot of the stuff that came before it and definitely after it. And it's hard to not talk about that stuff because as far as formula and like structure of movies, Aladdin is kind of the base point that a lot of stuff comes back, comes back to. I mean, hell, Scafar, Scafar, Scar (laughs) and Jafar are very similar characters in how they present themselves. Yes, they are. You know, they're both kind of, they're kiss up to their, their superior. They have this facade of being caring and considerate and then they're ruthless when the time comes. Um, and I think a lot of those stereotypes and and caricatures continue through the Disney pantheon. And a lot of that was born out of Aladdin. And so I think that's that's what makes Aladdin so powerful. Essentially, Aladdin is the ar- archetype for a lot of movies that came after. It was kind of the first time. I mean, A Little Mermaid a little bit yeah. too. But like, it, yeah. it was definitely the first time that like there were similarities between the heroes and villains of the stories that came later. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I mean, talking about queer-coded villains, Scar, you don't get much gayer than Scar. <laughs> I was at Disneyland. I was at Disneyland and we were watching World of Color for the first time and Scar comes up on the water screen and I go, ooh, gay icon Scar come through. And the people that were with were like, what? And giggled and then one of the queer people with me went, oh, yeah, I'd never thought of that before. And it was like, how have you never thought of Scar as a queer icon? He's the, you know, the, the little brother that got thrown out. Absolutely gay. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's honestly not a bad thing to to have Aladdin as a touch point and talk about the things that came before and came after, because this was a pivot point and things just kind of went up from here. Um, granted, the only thing that would gross as much as Aladdin was Lion King, which then would gross about 400 million more than <laughs> Aladdin did at the box office. But, you know, the, I think there was these uh, little mermaid and beauty and the beast were at the beginning of the Renaissance. And then Aladdin kind of cemented what they were doing. And then, Aladdin would propel a lot of the other movies that came about, like Tarzan and Hercules only came propelling out of Aladdin. So we can't talk about one without talking about the other. Um, Also, I'll just talk about the Disney Renaissance as long as anybody wants to. So uh, (laughs) I don't mind at all that we've deviated. But again, it's to talk about this as a whole. We have to talk about this era as a whole. Um, and even what came after, because Jeffrey Katzenberg really wanted to make that adventure film. And I think he did it really beautifully with Aladdin. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's definitely got some of the coolest action scenes during a song. You know, I love mm-hmm. uh, um, the Aladdin's whole song and like fighting the other Sultan guards. And like, you know, it's just it's playful in a way that nothing before mm-hmm, was, mm-hmm. I feel like. But no, I I agree because they were able to do like beating the beast got really beautiful sweeping landscape images and like the fight in that is cool. But like that is the constant tone of Aladdin. And then also, you know, in Lion King, it's a lot of constant action. And even in Pocahontas, I feel like they captured some of that as well. Now, that is a whole other thing for us to unpack. So I'm sure we'll discuss Pocahontas at some point, but (laughs) I am not rushing to it. Um, But, you know, I think it's. Yeah, I, I, it was this perfect little thing at the time, and I think it's still this perfect little thing if we look back. Not to repeat myself too much, but I think I think we can set aside some of our contemporary sensibilities 
and still really be able to enjoy this film. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. Um, I just, cause I just found out about magical girl, uh, burlesque, which you work on. Uh-huh. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess, do you want to, do you want to talk a little bit about how Disney, if it inspires any kind of what you do as an artist, I know you work with this really cool company in New York called the magical girl burlesque. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about that? Sure. So magical girl burlesque, though, I am definitely far from the spokesperson. The two awesome women who kind of created it are the spokespeople, uh, Betty Brash and Raina Sinclair, but, um, it's a femme forward, body positive, um, all POC forward, like troop that wants to just promote, um, an understanding of kindness, support, and more importantly, feminism, um, which I'm happy to be part of. Uh, we do a lot of nerdy burlesque shows. We have not done a Disney show yet. I think mostly for fear of how the hell we narrow that down, um, but there are definitely yeah, absolutely. But, but there are definitely <laughs> Disney fans among us. Um, uh, we've done a variety of different shows. From we did a video game theme show. Um, our next show, actually, I have no idea when this is going to air, but we're doing a show on November thirtieth. That's called the Kosher Cabaret. It's all Jewish performers, uh, all Jewish crew, and uh, all the music being performed to is by Jewish artists. The acts themselves don't have to have to do with Judaism, but um, but the rest of that stands, and so that's really exciting and different. Um, in December, we're doing a uh, sci-fi special show because all sci-fi shows have sci- uh, holiday specials. Um, and so it's just a sci-fi themed show, but it's for the holidays. So that'll be really exciting. Um, as far as the art that I do and if Disney influences it. Oh, fun. Um, That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, and, and as far as Disney's, Disney influencing the other art that I do, I mean, uh, when I'm making themed playlists for burlesque shows i throw in as much disney stuff as i can where i can um i do the nerdlesque festival every year in new york um i'm their official festival dj and so i always make a fun mix of nerdy music for pre and post show and i always throw in some disney stuff in where i can um because if i know anything about nerds in new york we're a nerd about a lot of things but music theater is definitely a big one um uh and as far as uh podcasting and such i mean we've talked about disney movies on screen snark before um we haven't talked about it a lot just because i don't uh, the more current stuff has been not stuff that me or rachel have been super into but uh but yeah i definitely carry my love of disney with me and i actually only went to disney world for the first time several years ago for my uh for my spouse's 40th birthday we took her she had she had never been either as a birthday present me and two good friends of mine and like I was kind of cynical in the beginning. I was very much like, oh, yeah, whatever, magic, uh-huh, okay. And then the first time I met Goofy, I cried. Like, so, you know, we all have that Disney magic in us, I yep. guess. Yep, yep, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd, I'd gone to Disney once before I started working there, and then I we were doing what's called Traditions for my college program, which is like, the, it's, it's when you drink the Kool-Aid. For anybody else that's worked at Disney, you know what I mean. Um, but Mickey walked in and gave us our, our flipping name tags and I wept. <laughs> I wept as Mickey handed me my stupid name tag. And it was, it, it's one of those things like I'm literally going to get off the uh, the podcast with you, get dressed and I'm going to Disney world <laughs> as soon as I get off with you. Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's, it's as problematic as this company can be. I still, I still find a way back to them and I still find a way 
to love the product they're doing while still going, ah, that's not an ethical practice. Let's, let's try a little better folks. Let's do a little better. Or I'm going to set this one out because I don't agree. Um, but like, it's, it's hard not to consume Disney now that they own so much. Yeah. I mean, and for, and, uh, for, I don't know how to rectify that, but at the same time, I'm obviously now creating content based on Disney content. So, you know, it's, it's what I love them so much, but I just, I mean, I feel like at the end of the day, they say all your faves are problematic and I think that's fine. I think, yeah, it, oh, I, th- I think it's okay I'm, for them to be problematic. Yeah. I think that at the end of the day, you know, acknowledging it, discussing it, working through it is how we grow as fans, how yeah. we grow with the things that we love and knowing when to like step aside and let the conversation be carried by those who probably the voices you should be boosting is also important. But, you know, it's 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 OK to still like things that have issues. Yeah. I think as long as you're discussing those issues. Yeah, I think. I, I think if we cut everything out of our lives that has anything remotely wrong with it in a way that's – unless it's short of being really unethical or dangerous or predatory, there's literally no joy left to anything, like anything at all. Sure. <laughs> and so I, ju- I, I just don't know why – like we just – I th- you know, I think we have to balance those things, but I think we can still – maybe it's you decide not to take in any new Disney content, but you still take in old Disney content because that is what you love. You know, those kinds of things where you're not giving them new money, but it's – you know, I think if we, if we cut off all those things – now, you know, there are those things where I just won't watch now that they're – problems with you know the knowing that the creators are abusers or those kinds of things but i think i we still you know i think we can still balance those the good with the bad because there's a good with the bad in every situation sure yeah i think that the the urge to to jump right to cancel culture makes sense right you don't want to support someone who is a horrible human being and i get that but i think cancel culture without a a a place to have dialogue beyond it and maybe not with that person but with others is where there's a disconnect because at the end of the day, we right. all want to move forward as a society. We want to grow. We want to do better. I know for a fact, I want to learn. I know I don't know a lot about a lot of things. And yeah. so continuing the conversation is important to me. It's tough with modern day politics, with a lot of big companies is a lot of it is very much, well, F the other side. Like I, I, I'm just going to ignore it. And that's not the answer, you know? Um, you know, that said, if you feel like you can't participate in that conversation also, that's up to you. You know, you, no one can force yeah. you to. Um, I think at yeah. the end of the day, like I love Disney. I love a lot of the things they do. It worries me when all of my favorite nerdy properties are under one umbrella. But, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, they're still moving forward and I can still enjoy it. But like, look, in the light of going back and this is slightly off topic now at this point, but going back to the thing with Jeremy Renner, like, again, Hawkeye's one of my favorite characters. But now... Every movie he's in as that character, I'm like, ugh. Like, and and he yeah. wasn't a great human then either. But it's like, you know, now mm-hmm. it's like, do I watch those movies anymore? Do I still enjoy them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, there's no, mm-hmm. I think there's no quick answer. I think I don't buy any movies starring him anymore for sure. Right. But you know, yeah. and I think when it comes back to Aladdin, like it's very easy to write it off if you feel like it's offended you or your culture. Like I get that. I totally get that. And. I wouldn't expect to to try and force anybody like this has merit. You must like it. Like, but I think at the end of yeah. the day, I still continue to like Aladdin because it meant a lot to me as a kid. And most importantly, because Robin Williams 
meant a lot to me as a kid. Like, I am not a burlesque performer. I joke about doing performances, and I have performed once or twice, done lip syncs and stuff, but, like, I always joke about doing some kind of tribute to Robin Williams or something because he's just someone who's influenced me. And I think why this continues to easily be my favorite Disney movie is not so much because it's the best, but because of that one beacon of light within it that then makes everything else um, right. relatable and right. enjoyable as well. Yeah, I agree. Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. I was so excited when you asked. Yeah. So if people online wanted to know more about what you do and all of your other properties, because you're one of the busiest people I know. <laughs> so if you want to throw down where everybody could find you online, this would be the point to do. I it. will do that. Thank you, Matt. Um, so uh, I go under Stormageddon in most places. It's my DJ name. Um, the easiest place to find me is at DJ underscore Stormageddon on Twitter. I post literally everything there. I do have a Facebook page as well, which is under Stormageddon. Um, the thing I'm doing the most right now is I've been streaming a lot, uh, some retro games, some modern games on twitch.tv. Uh, slash DJ underscore Stormageddon. Um, as far as my podcasts go, I have four of them. Um, three of them are under the certain POV umbrella, um, a network that both of us have been on. Um, I host a Screen Snark with Rachel Shank, which is a uh, funny podcast that looks at current media that we're watching, and we often have a guest on it. Uh, Matt, we would love to have you at a future point. <laughs> yes, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we will promote your, the hell out of your show. Um, yes. But then I also do Reignite with MJ Bradley Lestrange, which focuses on the Mass Effect series of games uh, made by BioWare, games that uh, were some of the most queer-forward games that I ever played, even though, looking back, they are still lacking in a lot of places. Um, but uh, has been enjoyable to re uh, renegotiate that narrative with a friend and play those games and talk about it. I do uh, Fun and Games with Jeff Moonen, which is a more general gaming podcast. We talk about tropes, trends, why we like certain games, um, all of that kind of stuff. And so all three of those shows are on the Certain POV Network. Um, you can find a link to our Discord server, which Matt is on, um, to come chat about those shows. But yeah, I'd say the easiest place to find everything that I do is uh, DJ underscore Stormageddon at Twitter um, because I post everything that I work on there. Brilliant. That's amazing. You all really should uh, go check out Screen Snark. Uh, it is my favorite of uh, Matt's properties. It is Thank so you. much fun. Um, and and Rachel Quirky Shank is so uh, just – she uh, she is my inner voice in so many ways that I just – uh, it's it's been so much fun to like have that as part of my work day because I've gone back through and like recently just like devoured a ton of the back catalog. Nice. So it's been so much fun and finding other a lot of because you guys bring on a lot of really great guests too that are all really kind of tangentially um, connected to you all or other nerd things. Um, you just I just finished the episode with Reina and uh, who I didn't realize Reina and I went to the same undergrad. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, had no idea uh, until I was digging on Facebook and went, oh, <laughs> I should know. I should know you. <laughs> um, well, Matt, thanks again for being on the show. This was my pleasure. I had a blast. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again for tuning in, Dreamers. As always, you've been landing us in the top charts for the U.S. and Australia, and we cannot thank you enough. Your five-star ratings and your thoughtful reviews keep us there each episode. Now, if you haven't left those yet, head over to Apple Podcasts or our new friends at Podchaser and leave those now. 
You can share us with your friends on social media, and you can pledge $2 a month. That's right, just $2 a month on Patreon. Help us keep this show going. Help me bring on more artists and help with the best to keep the show the best that we possibly can. I want to give a big shout out to our new digital editor, David White. We could not do this without you. Thank you so much. Now, big things to look forward to. March 15th, that's just around the corner. Dole Whip and Dreams live at SwampCon. That's right. Dole Whip and Dreams live at SwampCon at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida at 5 p.m. on March 15th. Come join us for a recording of a live episode with fabulous guests, prizes, trivia, and even a costume contest with some fun things to take home. Now, for more information on that, check out Dole Up and Dreams and Swamp Con on Facebook. Now, join us next time as we go from zero to hero with our guest, the gay Gaston, when we take a deep dive into the cult classic Hercules. As always, may your days be filled with Dole Up and Dreams.